Hello and welcome to Reading McCarthy. Reading McCarthy is a podcast devoted to the consideration and discussion of the works of one of our greatest American writers, Cormac McCarthy. Each episode will call upon different well-known Cormacian readers, scholars, and other experts to help us explore different works and various essential aspects of McCarthy's writing. My name is Scott Yarbrough, and I'll be your host for these forays into the deep wilds, dark groves, back alleys, and badlands of Cormac McCarthy. My returning guest today is Stacey Peebles. Stacy is chair of the English department, director of film studies, and the Marlene and David Grissom Professor of Humanities at Center College in Danville, Kentucky. She is the author of Welcome to the Suck, narrating the American soldier's experience in Iraq, published 2011, and Cormac McCarthy and Performance, page, stage, screen in 2017. She's also editor of the collection Violence in Literature, and with Ben West as co-editor of the volume Approaches to Teaching the Works of Cormac McCarthy, which was released just this past year. She has published widely on the representation of contemporary war and on McCarthy, has been editor of the Cormac McCarthy Journal since 2010. Stacy, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Scott. Thanks. Stacy joins us today to talk about Blood Meridian or the Evening Redness in the West, which is McCarthy's universally most beloved, most reviled. It inspires the most fanatical following. As I follow McCarthy meanderings and people's discussions on various forms of social media, this is the touchstone. This is the one that has people reacting most strongly, either positively or negatively, and has the largest discussions of who directs the film version. Can there be a film version? Who would you cast? Have you read this one yet? Uh, this is the best. This is the worst. It's on and on and on. So you've tackled a big one for us, Stacey, and we finally... I've gotten here at the podcast, so I really appreciate you taking this on. Yeah, this is the one, like you said, right? This is um, this is the one that you want to talk about. When people ask me, you know, I've never read McCarthy. What should I read? This is not what I tell them. No. <laughs> this is not never. the first book, right? No. But if they say, but really, you know, what's the best? Then I'll say Blood Meridian. Blood Meridian is the one that if you really want to know why McCarthy is McCarthy, then this is the one to go to. I always start, my starter pack for McCarthy is... Just as it's Azalea dying for Faulkner, it's start with All the Pretty Horses, which is a great book and shows you his genius, but is more approachable than Blood Meridian or Sutri. And then go on to the road. And from there, we'll back in. And how did you feel about all the dead babies in the road? How did you feel about the violence? Magnify times 100 and come along to Blood Meridian. So um, in the past episodes, we've talked about how you discovered him. We've talked about your work on the McCarthy Journal and interest in film studies. Can you, and I know you discovered McCarthy through all the pretty horses your dad recommended to you, if I recall correctly. That's right. That's right. How did you come to Blood Meridian? Was it just simply part of reading through the McCarthy canon? Just tell us how you came to it and what your first impression was. Well, so I discovered McCarthy in college, early, early in college. And I was in a program in college at the University of Texas uh, where you had to do um, a senior thesis, a senior project. And I had read All the Pretty Horses and I'd read The Crossing. And I and at that point, 1997, those that was the most recent work right. was The Crossing. Cities of the Plain had not yet been published. And I was interested in Southwestern literature. That's kind of what I thought I wanted to focus on, wanted to study in grad school. I thought, well, I know I'll write a thesis on McCarthy's three Southwestern novels. That's you know, All the Pretty Horses, The Crossing, and then Blood Meridian, which predates both of them. But I hadn't read it yet. So, and I thought, well, you know, how different can it be, right? So I proposed the thesis, you know, and it got approved and I was ready to do the project. And then I started to read it and I thought, oh my, oh my God, <laughs> what is this? How am I going to write about this? You know, this is, this is not what I expected at all. 
And like you said, I mean, nominally, if you're just reading synopses of these books, there's, you know, quite a bit in common, right? Borderlands and young men and all this kind of stuff. But in the actual reading experience, I think it's completely different. Right. Or different in really significant ways. <laughs> That's certainly what I thought. Uh, so I spent about a month in like a blind panic, just wondering how I was going to write this paper. And eventually, you know, came up, came, you know, figured out a way in. I eventually ended up writing about landscape, you know, the use of landscape in the three novels. And that worked. But I remember thinking, you know, phew, I think I got away with that. But I'm really, I'm going to have to spend more time with this. This is yeah. going to take a lot more work in the future. And I'm still working, right? <laughs> like that's, that's, I'm still working on it. It's a pretty inexhaustible book. You and I are briefly chatting about all the different critical and theoretical approaches to the novel. I don't think we've gotten anywhere close to the end of figuring it out, or if we ever will. When I ponder, and I've written on this and given talks on it, on the distinction between literary writing and more popular culture writing, and somewhere, you know, there's a continuum, and at some point, the line blurs Mm. between the two. So Raymond Chandler is not simply writing detective literature, but at the same time, he does use that framework and all those familiar tropes that's coming out of Hammett's invention of the hard-boiled and so Mm. on. But one of the distinctions I make is with the science fiction or fantasy or genre Western or genre romance or a time travel Scottish Highlands romance, you can pretty well get across what that book's about through a plot summary. Mm. And when you think of very literary novels, such as The Sun Also Rises by Hemingway or Moby Dick by Melville or Absalom Absalom by Faulkner or Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison, not one of those books can you really get across any portion of what it feels like to read that novel by giving a summary of the plot. And so when people say, oh, don't tell me the spoilers. (laughs) <laughs> I want to say, oh, that's not really a literary fiction thing. Here's a spoiler for Ulysses. Right. A guy wanders around town all day long wondering, is his wife cheating on him? And <laughs> the other spoiler, the answer is yes, but it kind of works out okay anyway. <laughs> so here we know that Blood Meridian is foremost in that rank of books, which the plot gives you no understanding what it's about. Nevertheless, give us a brief overview of the plot and novel just in general. What is it about? what happens before we kind of dig a little deeper? You know, that's funny because before uh, we started this podcast, I did something this morning that I don't think I've ever actually done. And I looked at the Wikipedia page for Blood Meridian. Oh, Uh, I was checking some dates, you know, I was kind of, I I was trying to remember something and I was looking at the plot summary and I, I, I was literally thinking this book, this is nothing about, this is, this is not the book. Right. Right. I recognize these sentences and what, you know, events these are referring to, but it's utterly not uh, what the book is actually doing. Nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, so what the book, you know, not only what the book is doing is about this kid, uh, this nameless kid, he's not given a name throughout the entire novel, although we know it's based on a guy named Sam Chamberlain who fought in the Mex- Mexican American war uh, and then rode with, John Glanton and his gang of scalp hunters in the 1840s, right? The late 1840s and early 1850s. And so the book is about this kid, the 16-year-old kid who is traversing this wild territory, uh, the American-Mexico borderlands in 1849, when a lot of the action takes place. He is riding with the Glanton gang. They are being paid to scalp Native Americans by the Mexican government in order to make that territory you know, more safe, in part for commerce, for trade and commerce and uh, settlements and things like that. 
there are various members of the Glanton gang, John Glanton being one of them. The one that everybody likes to talk about is uh, the person named Judge Holden. Judge Holden has only one historical source that we Mm. have identified, and that is in Sam Chamberlain's autobiography, which is called My Confession, Recollections of a Rogue. We can't find any other historical basis for him, but McCarthy blows him out into this larger than life character. And so when I often talk about the book and somebody says, yeah, you know, but what's it really about? I say, well, it depends on the reader, but in part, it's about this relationship between the kid and the judge and how they Absolutely. relate to each other, how they contrast what exactly is happening between these two characters from the beginning of the story all the way to the end. Right. And even the first time he sees him after the first encounter preaching revival tent and afterward the saloon Holden watches the kid as he rides by and even turns the horse. So the horse can see him as well. Uh, and it's a very creepy moment. And those scenes are throughout the book and they're very subtle. So it is, it is about that relationship and it does cover all that. And one of the things people like to talk about is that the Western has a peculiar place in American myth-making. I guess if you're British, that myth-making would be the tales of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, mm. you know, and Lamorte de Thur of Mallory. And then later it would encompass uh, Sir Francis Drake and the Spanish Armada and tales of naval conquest and the empire that the sun did not set upon and things like that until you kind of see the dissolution of empire in the years leading up to World War II and the reaction of people like George Orwell Mm. to it, even at an earlier stage, Joseph Conrad and so on. So in the United States, we have Western expansion throughout the 1800s and it's being mythologized as it's happening with the dime store Westerns. And then not long after the turn of century, the kind of modern Western novels invented or prefigured in Owen Wister's The Virginian, which I think Mm -hmm. was 1903. And then very quickly in silent film, we have the Western film, Mm -hmm. which, and there seems to be this feedback loop between the popular Western novels of the 30s, 40s, up through the 80s, it was still extremely popular. And feeding off the films and the films feeding off those stories, most of those great movies start as novels or short stories Mm -hmm. or novellas. And so he very much plays with genre in this, doesn't he? That whole notion of the Western and that that myth of American expansion. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, And I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. Yeah, and he said that, right, in interviews. You know, I I wanted to do this because... There's not a place you can go where people haven't heard of the Western, right? Interested in the Western. I tell my students when I teach the Western, you know, this is really the the most significant American genre. Mm. It's the one that is the most deeply American. It's it's the one where we work out our most fundamental issues and dark histories and questions and things like that. And you're right. It begins in this period in the 1800s where you have, you know, this territory that is being contested. You have outlaws, um, you have cattle drives, and then barbed wire is invented in 1873. Think 
maybe 74. Uh, and by 1890, you know, people are starting to declare that the frontier is closed. This right. period of American history is over. And yes. that's right before film gets invented. Uh, right. Just, right. A, just five years later, right? Yeah, not and open so, range anymore. Right, not open range. It's all closed off. You can't drive cattle the same way that you used to. And that's when the myth picks up. Um, right. And people start telling stories. You're right. Dime novels. First, it's cheap pop cultural stuff. Then it be becomes literary. Film comes along. I mean, the, the great train robbery is, I think, 1903. Yeah. You know, this 11 minute, you know, one reeler. And on from there. And it's a Western. That, it, it's a genre that occasionally people will say, oh, yeah, the Western's dead. You know, now that we are out of the 50s and 60s, you know, there's re and even the 70s, there's really no way to to freshen up this genre, to, you know, to, to, to ask any more questions about what it's doing. And then, you know, another group of Westerns come along that continued to ask these questions about, you know, American identity and justice and all this stuff. I mean, just recently we've had the power of the dog yeah. by Jane Campion sort of doing brilliant stuff with the genre. I also taught this movie, the harder they fall that uh, appeared back in the fall of 2021 on Netflix. And it's, all of these black cowboys who are based on real historical characters, oh, right. but that we don't talk about. Uh, right. One of them is even the basis has claimed to be the ba basis of Deadwood Dick, who's yeah. one of the foremost characters in the dime novels. So yeah, when you talk about the Western, if you're going to take on the Western, you're taking on something really considerable. Uh, and I think McCarthy was very much aware of that. So I can give you a little bit of the history here because he, he starts working on this idea in the 70s, uh, in the 1970s, mid-1970s. That's when he visits Arizona, starts taking some notes, looking at the, the region uh, and looking at historical sources. And he says he's working on, quote unquote, his Western right. that doesn't have a title. And, you know, it's also in the 70s when it's the middle of the 1970s when uh, he gets together with Richard Pierce and does The Gardener's Son. So he's making this foray into screenplays, right? Writing for the screen. Right. Later on in that decade, he separates from his second wife, Annie Delisle. And then in 1978, he writes a treatment for another screenplay of his own, which is the basis for Cities of the Plain, although at the very beginning, he calls it El Paso slash Juarez. Um, so I think, you know, in the 70s, he's kind of shaken up his career, right? And that was my question was when he when does he write the I call it Cities of the Plain screenplay, because I hadn't realized that predates a lot of the work he's doing in Blood Meridian or it's contemporaneous with it. It's contemporaneous, at right? Least. He's using some of the same research on region, some of the same details. Again, like we've talked about, it's a very different approach that has a lot more to do with romance. It has a named protagonist as opposed to, you know, this, this unnamed kid. But there's a lot of similarities, you know, and people have kind of talked about that. But to me, the important thing, or maybe, you know, the thing that strikes me kind of looking at this history of his career is... You know, he's not he's not just a Southern novelist anymore. Now he is a screenwriter attempting to be a screenwriter. He's changing the focus you know, of his regional imagination. And that's important. I mean, you've done a lot of these podcasts right on his Southern novels and worked through like how he's working with that history and that dialogue and those characters. And this is something very different. But he he takes it kind of head on and he's thinking about, yeah, uh, I wouldn't say it's a multiplicity of stories. Um, it's not like he's kicking off a number of different projects, but he's letting that take him into a couple of different narratives and a couple of different formats, right? And I think that that innovation, you know, that adapt that adaptability, that kind of you know excitement, maybe about a new a new genre, a new region, a new maybe area of interest, even as you still see his style, 
you know, some of his thematic, you know, interests, you still, you, those are consistent, I think, in a lot of ways across his career, but Blood Meridian is something pretty different. So Sutri's published in 79, 81, he gets the MacArthur Fellowship, the, the Genius Grant, as it's called, um, to support, you know, continuing to work on the book. Right. And so when this comes out in 85, it's a turning point in a big way. He's not famous. No. <laughs> that turning point doesn't happen until 92 when Pretty Horses right. comes out. And that's a different kind of turning point. But this one, this one to me, you know, when I kind of think about the arc of his career, this is a pretty big, this is a pretty big moment. And he moves to El Paso in 79 or when's that? 78. Yeah. 78, 78 we okay. think. Mm-hmm. So he's out there in the West and it's interesting because he does it for the most part with some scenes and Sutri aside, deal with the Southern preoccupation of race. Mm. But of course that's a, Lower South preoccupation, the Appalachians, which didn't have slavery, which went mostly pro-union mm. in the Civil War, the preoccupation has always been class. Yeah. And he deals with that head on through all his novels. But once he gets out West, he, he very much tackles race. And one of the things, of course, that's so interesting to me about McCarthy, one of the things I find is I talk to a lot of people with the podcast and over the years at our conferences and online and all is... He's always a little bit of a mirror for people and people who some people really want him to have a certain, you know, a pretty far left point of view. Some people see him as having Mm -hmm. a, if not politically right point of view, kind of an old man, old school kind of conservatism, Mm -hmm. regardless how that shows up in a voter's booth. And there is some truth to both those points of view. But I think he's almost evolved beyond our abilities to place people on those kinds Mm -hmm. of continuums. And one of the things I've always found fascinating about him is we're living in a time where there are speech codes and laws and council culture that more or less enforce the notion of political correctness. And McCarthy has just always refused to pay attention to it and to not let anything interfere with the art in that way. And he pushes every button there is for someone who's sensitive in this novel, not having a lot of sensitivity myself outside of sports fandom. (laughs) It doesn't really bother me, but I can see where if I'm talking to a lot of women, Stacey, for example, Mm. to uh, people of color, I'm Mm. a little cautious and I give, I hate to use the term, but it's what I do. I'll give trigger warnings. You know, and even yeah, my students, I'll say that's... all the big words are in this one. And I don't mean long right. words. I mean, the George Carlin favorite list type of words. Right. I mean, it's it can be a tricky one to teach for sure. You know, I sometimes tell the story of when I was interviewing for my first job after grad school. I was asked to teach a sample class, which I did. And, and uh, then I was asked to give a job talk. And I thought, well, I'll do Blood Meridian because I know that, you know, back to front. I, that's impressive. Everybody likes to talk about McCarthy. And so I did my job talk and then I was taking Q&A afterwards and somebody asked the question, so, you know, how would you teach this uh, in our required year long course uh, for first year students? I was like floored. You want to teach us to first year students? Are you crazy? Are you insane? Oh, yeah. No, that's why we're interviewing you. That's what we want to do. Well, here's the road. (laughs) (laughs) That's well, the road was not published yet. Okay. So the road hadn't come out yet. That that would have been, yes, that would have been the easier choice. But you do, you have to frame it. But I think, though, the novel, I often talk about it as a kind of provocation. One of the ways it's provocative is not just that kind of subject matter, which is easy enough to do for, you know, lots of people. Sure. But it's the richness of it and all of the different layers. Right. And so if you are the kind of, you know, perhaps small minded person who's just reading to look at what you're going to be offended by, good luck finding it. (laughs) 
<laughs> in a book like this, because there's a lot of other stuff you're going to have to get through first. Yeah. Not that you have to get very far to find stuff that can offend you as well. No, but you're, you're going to have to deal it. with language and, and historical detail. Again, historical this is detail, historical novel, ac- right? accuracy, like the right. name of the, of the pan on a flintlock pistol where the powder is stored. The prison Some vocabulary that's way yeah. out there. I mean, this is clearly not gratuitous. You know, right. this is this is taking on this stuff seriously. And I think, you know, McCarthy has said this and I'm not quoting him directly, but yeah, you got to look at this stuff. I mean, this is yeah. part of what I think all of his work is about. You're not really paying attention if you're not considering these kinds of things. I mean, the world can be a pretty dark place. Right. But what I see this book doing so well, as well as maybe everything. I mean, certainly things like The Road and Sunset Limited and No Country for Old Men, a lot of his more recent you know, work too, is once you recognize you know, how terrible a place the world can be, how do you respond to that? Right. What do you do with that? And it is part of the project of the book is to, on the one hand, a lot of the people who are offended by the language or the terminology don't really have a problem with murder and slaughter and rapine and all the things mm. which have happened is simply the language to describe these things in, in detail that bothers mm. them. And that I think needs to be a point of consideration for people. So, and, and there's always a, a weird sliding scale of whom the standard applies to. Mm. So we abhor the actions of the Glanton gang, but does that mean since the settlers are kind of the bad guys that we give a free pass to the Comanche who mm-hmm. operate under exactly the same principles. I don't know that it does to McCarthy. I think McCarthy is kind of saying, you know, he has this epigram at the very opening of the book about from the Yuma Daily Sun in 1982, Clark, who led last year's expedition to the Afar region of, Northeast, of Northern Ethiopia, and UC Berkeley colleague Tim D. White also said a reexamination of a 300,000-year-old fossil skull found in the same region earlier shows evidence of having been scalped. And I think scientifically, that 300,000 year label has certainly probably been debunked, if I had to guess. (laughs) But on the other hand, to McCarthy, I think one of the more telling scenes is from No Country for Old Men, when Ed Tom Bell's talking to his uncle about how horrible the world has gotten nowadays. And his uncle gives him a litany of, you think it wasn't always this way? And he said, this happened to your, (laughs) you know, your great uncle and your grandfather and your uncle. And he just goes through a list of things that have happened in the past where it's always been like this. Mm. It's nothing particularly new. And so I think McCarthy's making people kind of grapple with it and deal with it by putting their face right in it and say, yeah, there's some interesting stuff that happened with Western settlement. But if you think it wasn't horrific, you haven't paid close enough attention to your history as well. Right. And that's, that is a point of interest, both in terms of the history that this is dealing with, as well as the genre, because the Western has always been about violence. And what constitutes justice? And in the more simplistic versions of that, it's very easy to read. It's a white hat and a black hat, right? right. Um, or it's cowboys and Indians in that, you know, kind of right. old, you know, fairly racist uh, structure, you know, structure. But the Westerns that are really interesting, right? The ones that rise to the level of art are always complicating that. And I think yeah. that's true, even of something like Shane, which a lot of people point to as, you know, one of the the iconic Westerns, you know, and that's a conflict between ranchers and farmers at right. some basic level. And the ranchers have a pretty good argument. Uh, we were here first. Yeah. And then Shane's, you know, kind of moral ambiguity, uh, the fact that he does have to ride off at the end because he saved the town 
and that, you know, in Richard's formulation, right? right. It, it exiles him from the community that he saved. So the Western for me is interesting because it's always grappling with these questions of violence and justice or how we understand these conflicts and these different groups of people who are set against one another. But one of the interesting things, again, about Westerns that are really good is those categories become challenged. And the revisionist Western in this, you know, 70s on, onward, you know, does this, you know, starts to do this particularly well. I always think of Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven, when, you know, he has a line, you know, late in the movie, somebody's, he's about to kill somebody and the person says, you know, I don't deserve this. And he says, deserves got nothing to do with it. And you say, wow, that just unhooked this entire genre, right? <laughs> what is the Western if it's not about who deserves what and who gets to say? But Blood Meridian to me is something kind of similar. If you want to read this and try to put it into, put all the groups or the individual characters into categories of sympathy or morality, that gets really difficult. Now, ultimately, I say that, but my ultimate read on the novel is a reading that tries to do that. I mean, that's kind of my personal interpretation, but it's something you have to get, get to interpretively. It's not gonna, it's not gonna give you that. And that's true again of like the, the, the characters as literary creations and also as a historical, a, a novel that is using really, really deep, rich historical material. Absolutely. And as an aside, for our listeners who haven't necessarily had to study this stuff at a graduate school level, Richard Slotkin really arrived in discussions of the West, particularly with the book in the early 90s called Gunfighter Nation, The Myth of the Frontier, 20th Century America. And so it's really about, of course, the Western novels, but mostly the Western films and mm -hmm. looking back. And then he really boils down what he's doing there into, I guess it really came first in the early 70s and later is re-released. Regeneration Through Violence, Mythology of the American Frontier. So that's mm. the first one. And then later comes yeah, yeah. Fighter Nation. Those are useful books. I think you don't see a whole lot of regeneration through the violence here. It's more violence right. for the sake of sorting out differences and sorting out philosophies and perspectives. So at the, at the core of the novel, you said before, we have two characters. And from the very opening page, we have the kid who like later characters from the road has, has no name. He's just right. referred to as the kid. And we open, see the child. He is pale and thin. He wears a thin and ragged linen shirt. He stokes a scullery fire outside lie dark turned fields of rags of snow and darker woods beyond that Harbor yet a few last wolves. His folk are known for hewers of wood and drawers of water. But in truth, his father has been a schoolmaster. He lies in drink. He quotes from poets whose names are now lost and we have no name ever. So tell me, what do you think about mm -hmm. the kid? Why, why no name? Why have the centering protagonist in the novel in as much as there is one be a 16 year old nameless teenager? I think part of it is, well, first it's interesting to contrast him with John Grady Cole, uh -huh. um, who's also 16, who yep. lives it. You know, he is the protagonist of all the pretty horses that is set in 1949, which is exactly 100 years later. And John Grady is so different from the kid beyond age and region. Uh, he, yeah. He's named, of course, his name has meaning. It links him to his family and his situ the, the situation of his family as well. He is talented, skilled, romantic. Uh, he's the guy you want to watch, right? Reliable, um, responsible. Right. And I, you know, I 
have my reading of John Grady that's not quite that sympathetic sometimes, but he's the one you watch, right? If you're reading the book, you think, oh yeah, there's the hero, right? As my students would say, there's the protagonist. When you read Blood Meridian, the kid doesn't draw your eye in, in anything like the same way. You read into the book and it doesn't take very long for you to see the judge and then get interested in the judge. Like, oh, that's the one I want to watch. What's he doing? What's he about? Is this the devil? <laughs> if he's not, what is he? Is he a supernatural person, you know, what, what is he up to? What does he want? And it's so easy to lose sight of the kid. And so I think part of what McCarthy is doing, it's, you know, that's kind of a trick, right? Like, don't, don't forget, see the child, Ah. see the child. You think he's not the center because he's nameless. He's quiet. He's illiterate. He's small, but he's the one to watch. Yeah. He's the one that you don't want to lose sight of. Yeah. I mean, keep the judge in your sights too, but this is not a book that's just about the judge. And so people who sometimes read Blood Meridian for the first time, you talked about readers who sometimes want to categorize McCarthy, maybe politically or otherwise. And they say, oh, well, clearly the judge is speaking for McCarthy because he's so eloquent and he's so educated and he's so interesting and charismatic. And you know, and it's maybe a natural step to just equate that with the author and say, no, remember how we're supposed to see the child. Right. This book begins with him. And, you know, he's born during the lead and meteor shower of 1833. Um, the last time we see him, stars are falling at the very end of the novel. Like this is someone of significance. What that significance is, you have to figure out. It's not going to lay it out for you. But I mean, the sentence in the novel that I always quote when people ask me what it's about beyond, you know, what we did earlier, kind of a basics of plot is the one, well, in my edition, it's page four. It's actually just the second page of the novel. Only now is the child finally divested of all that he has been. His origins are become remote as is his destiny. And not again in all the world's turning will there be terrain so wild and barbarous to try whether the stuff of creation may be shaped to man's will or whether his own heart is not another kind of clay. Mm. And that's to me, that's the thesis. It's not the answer, but here's this kid. He's like a blank, a blank slate. And you're right. going to put him in an environment that has no rules practically, right? It's the frontier about as ultimate a, a sense of the frontier as you can get, which is, again, the interest of this genre, right? What happens when there's no established order or when that's just in the process of getting established? Who gets to, to decide what happens? Who gets to decide what's right and wrong? So what's going to happen to this kid? Is he going to be shaped by his environment? Is he, or is he somehow going to shape it? Like what, will, what, what happens if he's this very interesting test case? And so I think McCarthy is being kind of tricky again, because he's the kind of character you just want to, you know, you kind of want to forget, but McCarthy's telling you in these opening pages, no, this is why you're reading this book. You know, the, the great American tale of going out on your own and hitting the road is always a building Shraman, right? Mm -hmm. Huck and Jim hit the river and Huck learns morality from a place that's not supposed to come from, from, a, from mm-hmm. a slave. He learns compassion and caring from that place when his own father, who's horrific and white society have failed to show him things like compassion, empathy, honesty, all these things that Jim exemplifies. And you see that story kind of played out in different ways. And it is a trope of the Western too, the, the young character setting out on their own. So Louis L'Amour's famous characters, many of them start as teenagers at 18 mm-hmm. and 19 and then become older characters. His, his Sackett brothers are, are a good example of this and mature into these 
John Grady only wishes he was one of these guys because they're really just mm-hmm. perfect kind of characters. And and of course, he's messing with that with John Grady. But then we had the famous characters coming out of this time period. So the mm-hmm. James gang who starts with those boys as teenagers in the Civil War, riding with the, the various raiding bands of Confederate pseudo conscriptees, mm-hmm. but really just uh, marauders into into throughout Missouri and into Kansas, so on. And we have Billy the Kid. And this mm-hmm. becomes such a, you know, in the, in the 60s when Marvel's doing Western comic books, you have Kid Cold Outlaw, the Rawhide mm-hmm. Kid, and um, the Two-Gun Kid. So it really is a thing about the Western somehow. And I don't know whether, one of the things I've been dying to ask uh, Cormac's brother, Dennis, is whether or not these guys read comic books as young mm-hmm. men, whether they were, because in the 50s, most of the superhero comics have gone away. It's all mm-hmm. about Western comics and the detective right. comics and horror comics and all that. And I'm, I'm curious about it. So I think he's even subverting it further, but also, as you said, for the reader, the judge has a center of gravity. There's a gravity well around him and you cannot escape his orbit very right. easily, but that's equally true for the characters mm-hmm. who are mostly drawn to the judge and they follow what the judge says. They follow what the judge does. And one of the things that's weird to me, and I mean, we'll get into this is at first the kid shows he has that capacity for mindless violence as the opening mm-hmm. of the book tells us he meets toad vine and they go at each other. Yeah. And then he makes friends with this guy who almost killed him. They go into the hotel. They go upstairs to deal with the guy that Toadvine has the problem with. They light the hotel on fire. And immediately Toadvine says, you know, kick him, kick him while yeah. he's fighting. And the kid throws himself into it and they kick a the guy and they, they more or less kill him. Mm. We don't know, I guess, for sure that he dies in the fire, but it's to be assumed. And he's laying there with his mouth wrecked, kicked apart by the kid. And the kid has no trouble with attacking and killing other people kind of mindlessly. And we don't see any pullback from that until he's with Glanton's gang. So I wonder if he, Mm. in a sense, is one who at some level figures out the judge's nature instinctively and starts pulling away as the rest pull in because he realizes, I don't know. I don't know what he realizes, but it's weird to see who he is at first and how that shifts. What about this kind of back and forth between he and the judge and the way it just manifests itself in the novel? Well, I mean, first, you're right, though, that I think the kid does have an arc. You have to look for it. You have to think about it. Again, there's so much else going on in the novel that that can be distracting. But I always think earlier in the book when he joins up with the Captain White expedition, which is this fictionalized but historically based, you know, filibustering expedition that, you know, they're going to go down into Mexico and continue the Mexican war because they don't like the way it ended. And, you know, uh, they're going to save these people from themselves. You know, Captain White gives every kind of white supremacist rhetoric that you can think of. Jane Fonda calls us the war of Mexico and we're going to get those boys and get them home. Kind of right. right. They're a race of degenerates. They can't govern themselves. You know, again, if you want if you want a handbook like it's right there. Yeah. Uh, and the kid just says, yeah, do I get a saddle? Do I get a saddle? <laughs> right? get a saddle? So he's violent, but it is mindless violence. Yeah. It's not, There's it's no not agenda. motivated no. <laughs> by some of this other stuff. have a cause. Right. And he, nor is he a bigot. He'll kind of go after anybody if they're in his way. I mean, that was the basis of the conflict with Toadvine. Like they're walking on a board from opposite directions so they don't have to step in the mud and neither of them will get off. Right. They won't let each other buy, so they just go at it, right? Uh, it's about as basic as you get, you know, in some sense. So the kid is not does not seem reflective. He's a he's 
he's an actor, you know, he's an active person. But then he meets the judge and the judge is just this font of philosophizing and erudition um, and ideas and violence. Everything is coming out of this guy. And I think, again, this is my reading, but as the novel goes on, you do see less and less of the kids active violence. In the massacre scenes, a lot of people have pointed out there are these large scale, you know, scenes of violence that happens. And even if the Glanton gang, in some cases, is the one doing the perpetrating, you don't get particular descriptions of what the kid is doing in right. that scene. You know, what exactly is, is, you know, is he, even though, you know, some of the really horrific descriptions of violence that do occur within those scenes, the kid is not the, the one perpetrating that. And then you see him oddly pulling back from yeah. other other things. You're not shooting Shelby, pulling the arrow out of David Brown's shoulder. When right. everybody tells him, don't do that. He'll take that you guy's with him. So, he's going to be yeah. so crazed with pain. He's going he's gonna to attack you. He'll take you like a bride to the altar, right? Yeah. And he, but he does it anyway. Yeah. Uh, push it. I guess he pushes it through. Right. Which, yeah, sounds pretty painful. And he keeps doing stuff like that near the, you know, as the book goes on, things that in this little society of the Glanton gang, that's not what you do. Very killer be killed. And he's backing off. And then in the end, he doesn't shoot the judge when he has a chance in the desert. Now, that could be because of fear. I right. don't really know. He, as an older man, you know, tries to help the elderly woman who's crouched in the rocks and Right. Tells her, I'll take you someplace, you know, I'll take you back to your people. You know, can I help you? Talks to her for quite a while. Turns out um, she's dead. So that's yeah. too bad. <laughs> but these, there are these small moments of mercy that he seems to be capable of. And that, at least in my reading, is the basis of this final conflict between the two, between the kid and the judge. When the judge says, only one of us did not pour out his heart into the common. Can you tell me who that one was? Like only one of us didn't give himself up totally to this violent reveling. Right. What is the response? The the kid's response is it was you. You're the one. You're the one who's separating yourself. You're the one who's isolated, not me. And so there's this accusation that is rendered both ways. And the judge seems to be advocating for mindless violence, the thing that characterized the kid at the beginning. But now the kid does seem to reject that. If mindless violence is what the judge calls the dance in the last part of the book, again, this letting of blood, if war is not holy, man is nothing but antic clay, all of these things the judge says, and the kid just says no. The kid doesn't say a lot, but he does He does push back. What's the line about the clemency? Only one had clemency Only in his heart. Only one uh, gave clemency to the heathen. Right. And of course, something I've thought for a long time, and Russell Hilliard does a great job talking about this in his book on morality mm-hmm. and McCarthy's fiction, is the discussion that who are the heathen? Well, it's not really just the Apache and other Native Americans, and it's not the, the Mexican mm. people that they uh, treat so horribly. It's also the people that are part of their circle. And so right. he, he shows mercy towards Sproul and towards David Brown and towards the others when he tries to help them at different Mm. times as well. And so there's, it is fascinating how that happens. Steve Fry sees, and I know there's a famous YouTube clip of teaching the book uh, by a Dr. Um, Amy Hungerford, who I don't really know Mm. through McCarthy studies is an American lit scholar. And they talk about the influence of Moby Dick on the Mm. novel. And I do think there are some few structural framework things. I don't think I go far as Steve does. But one of the things Steve points out is that Ishmael, starts us off in Moby Dick and then disappears for two thirds of the book. He's hardly mm-hmm. in 
from about 30% to 95%. He's hardly in the book at all. And then he shows up occasionally and he's our narrator rather than a character. Right. And then he kind of reappears at the very end. And he, he points out the kid too, somewhat disappears in the narrative as we focus on the judge and the rest of the Glanton gang mm. as well. And I, I don't, I'm curious how much that's on purpose from McCarthy and how much of it is because that judge is the center of gravity in the book, you know, one way or the other. So, right. And, you know, you've got to kind of get to know him. You've got to see what the Glanton gang is about. Yeah. And also some of those middle scenes, when I teach the book, it's the middle of the book. That's the hardest. I sometimes call it it in a teaching sense, not in a composition sense. Like it's the mushy middle. It's the part where yeah. if you're going to stop reading. That's where you're going to stop because you don't know what's happening because all of these different groups are arrayed against each other, particular Mexican towns, particular, you know, indigenous tribes, the Glanton gang, you know, other white settlers, like what is going, where are they? What is right. going on? There's one scene where the Glanton gang encounters uh, the Mexican soldiers led by, I think it's Elias. Right. Is that right? And one of them raises a saber to heart, halt the column and the Glanton gang just fires on them immediately. And that's a scene where it's like, what just happened? Why did they do that? And I asked Diane Luce once, is that because they misunderstood the raising of the saber as an attack symbol as opposed or gesture as opposed to a halt? And she said, no, I think they just fired because they'd already been k- killing Mexican citizens for their scalps. Yeah. And they they were trying to continued to get away with it. They, they knew they were in trouble. And so they just jumped the gun. Like they, you know, they didn't uh, obey any rules of parlay. They just fired. Right. But that's the kind of scene where there's all this stuff happening and you do have to get a sense of the chaos of this time period and how it's not just in the typical Western you know, cowboys versus Indians. It's not just a univectored contested territory. Right. Where, you know, watching classical Westerns, you also have a sense of, oh, yes, I know what happens. I know, quote, unquote, who wins. Right. This is different. (laughs) This is you kind of need that historical chaos to really to really get a sense of how McCarthy is painting this historical portrait. But it's hard. I mean, especially on first reading, that is that's hard because you do you lose sight of this kid. You're listening to the judge, but it takes a while to figure out what he's about. Yeah. He just keeps talking and talking. And now he draws pictures and then he erases them. And uh, what is he? He knows geology and he can play the fiddle and can speak all these different from. languages. Right? <laughs> right, right. And that's, you know, that's interesting. But eventually the kid you know, has to come back in this prominent way. And he does by the end. So one of the first things that any reader has to decide going through the novel is how do you locate the judge? The novel is grounded Mm -hmm. in uber horrific realism everywhere except when it comes to the judge. So Mm -hmm. we meet up with him all those years later at the end of the book. And I'm trying to remember off the top of my head how many years passes between Uh, 1878 at the end. Right. So and then most of the action earlier is set in 1849. Right. So we have 29 years Mm. and the judge has an age today, seemingly. Mm. He appears places he's not. How could he have gotten there so much Mm. more quickly? How could he go from here to there Mm. uh, in these different ways? And there may be a completely regular, some totally explainable circumstance which has occurred. So it's like the old Christmas movie when you were a kid. Okay. Did Santa Claus really 
up here? Was that really <laughs> Santa Claus or was it something we can completely exchange as natural phenomenon that seems like Santa? And mm-hmm. this is probably the first time anyone's drawn a connection between the judge and Santa Claus. So I'll plant that flag here for myself. <laughs> but so at the judge, we have, he throws a coin out into the darkness and it comes mm. back to him. Maybe it's chicanery. Maybe it's some kind of, we, you know, he's around jugglers and, and mm. charlatans and he knows how to deal with them and mess with them. But he seems to know things that shouldn't be known. He contests mm. people reading fortunes and yet sometimes oh, and when, forces you know, people when he first When the Glanton gang first comes across him, he's just sitting on a rock in the middle of the desert. Right. Just there. Like it always been there. Just appears. That's in the story told by Tobin, who's an ex-priest. And it is certainly inflected with some Milton vibes at the very least. For sure. For sure. But yeah, he is um, not openly supernatural, but the possibility is there. Right. You know, there are always these hints that maybe he's not normal. Maybe he's not a normal human. It's definitely wavering over that line into magical realism a little Mm. bit. It's not like 100 Years of Solitude where mm-hmm. we see all these different things happen, but there is a mysteriousness to his nature that is yeah. central and an incredibly important part of who he is. He is a cipher that people try to make right. him into something. No, and that's what makes him, I think, one of the most compelling literary portraits. I mean, I always kind of hammer on about the kid, but yeah, the judge is what everybody wants to talk about. And there's reason for that because he's so wonderfully drawn. Right. Now, it's worth mentioning that in, you know, Sam Chamberlain's autobiography, there are, you know, there's description of Holden. He is described as being hairless, being seven feet, close to seven feet tall, being very well educated, being multilingual, playing the fiddle. And so McCarthy is not making him up, at least in that sense. Right. But he is making him into a literary character that is. I mean, rivals any of the best literary characters that you can think of. Absolutely. Yeah. I always think of, you know, what John Seppich said about Blood Meridian in particular, and he called it, um, he called this particular quality, like its problem of information. He said, this is a novel that is so painstakingly historically sourced and researched. I mean, if you look at McCarthy's notes in his archives, he read everything. He went to these places. He took notes on the geography. He took notes on the towns. He took notes on the language, on the idioms of the area, just everything. He took notes on horse ailments. He took notes <laughs> on if the stove worked in the courthouse, you know, all this stuff. But, says Sepich, you put that against the fact that, A, most readers don't know this history. This is not gone with the wind, Right. They don't know these char- these figures. Right. They don't know this history. And two, what Seppich says, also the audacity with which McCarthy tailors this information to his own ends. So he's not writing straight historical fiction. And this book is almost never described that way because it is this weird contrast of incredibly rich history, but incredible artistry at the same time. He is using this stuff, but it's just a baseline. Right. And so first, we need to absolutely pay a little bit of obeisance to <laughs> John Sepik for uh, Notes on Blood Meridian, because it mm. is so great for learning the history. And it'd be one of the things we could find out about. Maybe you go back and look at that scene where they pull up the, the saber and see if they have some particular knowledge of that, that particular group of soldiers. Well, I think it's probably what you said, which is they know people are out to get them and it's just mm. shoot first. So you don't have to be a better soldier if you wipe out <laughs> right. half of them before you start. And also, you know, we have whenever you have historical novels and we can connect here to George Lecoq's, uh, if I'm saying his last name right, famous book, 
the historical novel, mm. one of the first questions you have is, is fidelity to history all the book is? And there are a lot of historical novels, which I think are really only trying to give you a taste for what it would have been like in those days. And right. of course, then we have the kind of modern writing, modern Hollywood version where we're going to take the notion of those days and then completely filter it through our modern sensibilities and tastes. Right, right. So that you have in the 50s, the Western hero, uh, along with being perfectly good and kind and charming and not having any kind of, I don't know, genocidal tendencies. <laughs> also, always clean shaven and well manicured and well dressed. And if he were a doorkeeper in a small town, that's conceivable. But if he's actually in the Seventh Cavalry or riding the range as a cowpoke or out moving along the frontier or leading wagon trains is impossible. And which leads, of course, to the 60s and 70s, which go right. the exact opposite extreme and are probably equally unrealistic. But at least if they err, they err on the side of making them too dirty and not too clean. One way or the right. other. So, yeah, what McCarthy is doing here with history is something different. He's not it's not a crutch. It's not even a scaffold. No. Um, although, I mean, it does make some readers feel better. They say, oh, my, my mom. She can say, oh, well, it, it really happened. So that makes right. this okay. It makes the yeah. violence not just like some sickos, <laughs> you know, imagination, right? Yeah. And Rick Wallach pointed out to me that there's a, a theory now, too, that Holden is himself a construct by Chamberlain just to drum up interest in Holden in his My Confessions to give it right. a central and hence, bad guy. Yeah. They're right. Hence, of, that's the, maybe the old, that maybe that's why that's the only source that we see him in. I mean, apparently when McCarthy was leading up to the publication of Blood Meridian in 85, his editor, uh, Albert Erskine, was was thinking about some of these questions in terms of marketing, mm. right? How, you know, how should we sell this book? Should we push the history, right? Should we push this as historical fiction? And McCarthy wrote a letter to him in 1984, just the year before it was published. And he said, I love this quote. It's one of the few times he's been somewhat explanatory about what he does, does the truth is that the historical material is really, to me, little more than a framework upon which to hang a dramatic inquiry into the nature of destiny and history and the uses of reason and knowledge and the nature of evil and all these sorts of things which have plagued folks since there were folks. <laughs> and then he adds, I think the Bard would have agreed with me that that's as proper a use of history as any. So the bar, yeah. um, of course, referring to Shakespeare. But yeah, you think about how Shakespeare uses history. Right. And you don't care about Richard III because, oh, yeah, I kind of want to know about the historical king. Right. That's right. not why that play is fantastic. And that's not why Blood Meridian is fantastic. Either. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he honestly could have chosen an almost any framework dealing with some kind of myth making and have it work. Mm -hmm. It could have been Irish for that matter. And dealing yeah, with, yeah, right. You know, the 1916 Easter Rebellion and showing it from all those ways mm. and and just have a wholly different look on it than people tend to have when they do that. Hmm. So one of the things you just use the word framework, and there is a, a framework people try to apply to the novel. And I, you and I are, I think are in accord that maybe we don't go all the way with them, but it's interesting hmm. to consider. And that's the use of Gnosticism in the novel. So there's a thread of it in an early essay by Rick Wallach, which is also talking about Hinduism and, you know, famous mm -hmm. avatars and so on as well. And there's a, a great section in uh, Diane Luce's wonderful book, Reading the World, McCarthy's Tennessee Period, which talks about how much it's used in Sutra and some other ones. Mm -hmm. And again, this use of Gnosticism and probably the, the book that really just tackles it head on throughout and does a great job explaining it and 
looking for it is uh, Petra Mundick's Bloody and Barbarous God. I don't know if Petra listens to the podcast, by the way, but I wish she'd reach out to me because I've been trying to find her mm. email and it's been difficult. And it, partly she's way down in Australia and that's a long drive for those of us <laughs> in South Carolina. Right. So the whole concept of Gnosticism is that if God is infinitely good and pure, our world is too evil and fallen for him to have any connection to us. Mm-hmm. And so and he's, he absents himself at a distance, creates a, a demiurge to run the world and mm-hmm. kind of keep, there can be various kinds of demiurges and there also can be archons, which are lower level. Uh, I don't know if we'd call them angelic, but creatures of power mm-hmm. that somehow or another mediate our world for the demiurge uh, who then connects it on. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like an org chart approach to cosmology where you, you know, you go from, from God to the demiurge to the archons to the, the evil twisted peoples. And so there's a lot of speculation of how this, this Gnostic framework, and it starts with that quotation, I think from Jacob Bowen that's mm-hmm. in this book and that he's referenced of course in his other books as well. And it's used throughout, but, I worry when people dig too deeply into it, they're being reductive in their reading of the novel. What's what's your take on it there? I like it as a take. Um, I just think it's, you know, for me, it's not the definitive one, just like, just like so many other things. Anytime you think you've got a particular system by which you can understand what McCarthy's doing, I mean, just like the judge, it's probably going to wiggle out of your grasp. Now, that said, I think that, you know, particularly Diane and, and Petra's readings are nuanced and complicated and interesting. And Absolutely. they kind of talk about, you know, how McCarthy would have encountered this, perhaps, um, you know, how he would have learned about, you know, this way of thinking about the world. And certainly, you know, he is, uh, as, you know, growing up Catholic and that kind of stuff. I mean, he's interested in the divine. He's interested in modes of thinking about the world, certainly. And good he's, and evil, he's definitely right? leaving some breadcrumbs in there for people. Oh, as yeah. Well. Right. And there are, there's, there's particular vocabulary, like the word archon, you know, is right. in the book and that's, so, that's arcane and specific. Yeah. Solider, uh, I think, term. than one of the other Yeah, yeah other right, right. Exactly. And so I think, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, it is, and again, I don't think Diane and, or neither Diane nor Petra would be, would be um, saying, oh yeah, that's the key to unlock yeah. absolutely everything. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting to read about if, if you are, you know, kind of got that theological interest. You know, this is a pretty interesting way of thinking about the world's organization. And certainly the, the darkness uh, of Blood Meridian leads a lot of people right. to think about it in that sense. Although for me, you know, I, I sometimes, I guess I have assigned uh, something about Gnosticism when I've taught Blood Meridian is like, well, what do you think about this? But uh, always alongside right. other stuff. Because when you want to talk about theology and philosophy, there's so much else that's also there's going on. There's a lot on. else going on. There's a lot of Nietzsche. Yeah. Even the whole concept of the Odyssey, which is if God's mm-hmm. infinitely good, how can evil be tolerated to exist? Right. And the response of, well, you got to have free will. You're not being kept mm-hmm. in a terrarium. It's not always satisfying if you've had evil things happen to you. <laughs> you know, right. and I think of it as, you know, Joyce's Ulysses is constructed famously on this lattice work of the Odyssey. But knowing that only gets you so far. And mm-hmm. I do wonder that if people, only want to find elements of the Odyssey when they read Ulysses are missing a whole lot of what Joyce is doing. And so that is the value of what Diane does and Petra does. It's, there's a lot more complexity to it. But again, to me, it's still, it's only part of the picture and it's one way of approaching it. But then there's so much else rich stuff going on. And I think of the judge writing stuff in his book, erasing it, finding the petroglyphs mm. left by you know ancient indigenous peoples and erasing them and kind of erasing all these philosophical threads that coming into mm-hmm. the book and that he weaves into his own tapestry to 
use that Millvillian Weaver God kind right. of terminology that he references in various books, uh, McCarthy references in books as well. So if I told you, trying to give you a more accurate view of Blood Meridian in Wikipedia, well, <laughs> this is a book that does all kinds of philosophizing and discussion, and we see Gnostic theology, we see discussions of the nature of evil, and the guy who tells you this is almost certainly a pedophile who likes to murder people. That doesn't really pull you in either, and it's very really hard to get right. across, but <laughs> what uh, what about someone approaching it? I mean, how do we describe the novel to the person who hasn't read it but is interested in it mm-hmm. beyond what we've said about all this historical underpinning and the, the weirdness of the judge? I mean, what about the language? What about its willingness to wrestle with philosophy? How do you describe those to people? I often, I mean, sometimes when I'm setting this up for students, I'll say, you know, one of the reasons this is the book that has been written about as much as it has. I think the road uh, beats it in terms of numbers of scholarly articles. Uh, Probably that show recently, up, right? Yeah, on uh, on something like you know the MLA bibliography. Well, and that's that's his true first bestseller. Even uh, right. all the pretty horses right. doesn't compare in terms of sales. It was an, it was an Oprah book. Right, right. And so it's very popular and it has drawn a lot of critical attention, even from people who were not putting it in the context of other McCarthy works, right? They're not coming at it from McCarthy studies. They're coming at it from all right. other sorts of things. But Bloodbreeding, I still think, even, even though the road can be also talked about from a number of different angles. I think Blood Meridian probably has it beat on just the variety of approaches, because as we've said, you, it, it, some of the earliest work was about the history, right? Uncovering some of this historical sources. You can talk about McCarthy's creative process. If you look at the drafts and his archive, you know, some of the early drafts of Blood Meridian are pretty spare. Uh, and that's uh, interesting to think about how he starts the story and what how he builds it, right? right. The layers in which he builds it. You can talk about language and linguistics, not just vocabulary, but structures of sentences and, you know, the rhythm of all this. You can talk about allusion to other, you know, its literary context, both in terms of genre, but also, you know, things like Melville, right. uh, other literary traditions. You can do region as this, as a Southwestern novel, right? Or a border novel. Like how does it, how is it in play there? Certainly all of these different philosophical approaches, and there have been many <laughs> that people <laughs> have taken and, you know, kind of considered and played with. And that's just, oh, and then even more recently, what I've seen, you know, in just the, what, 12 years I've been editing the journal, um, economics, people are really interested in this as a book that is showing, in some sense, like, this is when capitalism really starts to take off. And part of why the Glanton gang are being paid to do what they do is to clear the area for trade. Right. Uh, and their weapons are being supplied by the American government. So- What's the interest? Well, it's because, yeah, you want you want trade to happen. They call scalps receipts. Yeah. So there's been some really interesting work on, you know, from an economic angle, like how is this a portrait of this particular time in history when, you know, currency is kind of in flux, right? Uh, but everything is starting to get established, but it's not really set yet. So how how is this a, you know, an origins of capitalism kind of novel? So that's, you know, that's been a point of interest in the last decade or so. Uh, now with McCarthy's association with the Santa Fe Institute, um, what about complexity science? What about complexity theory, which touches things like large groups and ah, economics, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And politics and all this. But beyond that, I mean, those are scholarly approaches, right? If I'm kind of characterizing for students or people, but then if I've just got, if I got a group of students who aren't necessarily interested in what kind of articles they can find or what scholars have said, I'll say, look, you know, this is about 
all kinds of stuff, just like McCarthy says in that letter, the humanity's relationship to the natural world, humanity's relationships with each other, you know, how society yeah. works, how knowledge and representation works, particularly like you said, in the figure of the judge who is a writer. He wants, he's, he's, he records things. Is a polymath who's studied everything, it seems. He has all this extensive mm. knowledge of nature, knowledge of philosophy. He speaks all these languages. He's journeyed all over the world. The song I hear in my head when we see the judge is Sympathy for the Devil by the Rolling Stones. Yeah. That opening line, please allow me to introduce myself. <laughs> right. And of course, uh, the irony of that song is, well, all evil lies in people. We don't need the devil to do it for us. And mm. that's one of our questions about the judge, of course, is again, He's, that that ending sequence is he's dancing his dance and mm. no one can dance like him. That kind of, I don't know, pagan pan fiddling and, and dancing mm-hmm. almost in a way or not fiddling, but his uh, pan would be blowing the flute and all that. But he never sleeps. He says, he says he'll never die. He bows to the fiddlers and sashays backwards and throws back his head and laughs deep in his throat. He is a great favorite, the judge. He wafts his hat and the lunar dome of the skull passes palely under the lamps and he swings about and takes possession of one of the fiddles and he pirouettes and makes a pass, two passes, dancing and fiddling at once. His feet are light and nimble. He never sleeps. He says that he will never die. He dances in light and in shadow and he is a great favorite. He never sleeps to judge. He is dancing, dancing. He says he will never die. And of course, the teacher in me says well, that whole section jumps in the present tense, not past tense. Yeah. And as we've been saying, so what is he, you know, what does this mean? Who does he, you know, what, what does he stand for? If anything, right. what do you do with that? Of course, again, I come back to what I think McCarthy is always doing is you have this towering, literally towering figure right. uh, who seems immortal, who embodies in some very basic sense, this side of humanity, which is yeah. horrible <laughs> and it, not just violent, but utterly reveling in that violence and uh, seductive. Yeah, yeah. Because of it, like he draws people to him. And as a species, this is who we are, but it's not only what we are. So what do you do again when you recognize that humanity can be pretty awful yeah. and, and put a pretty good face on that too, right? So what do you do in response to that? Again, Sheriff Bell in No Country for Old Men, he has, he has a response quite in the Sunset Limited, He's got a response. So does Black, right? For that matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The father and son on the road confront the same question. What do you do? I think Blood Meridian is a little harder to figure out what the answer is. But to me, it's in the figure of the kid. Yeah. I mean, he resists. Now, does it matter? I don't know. What happens to him? We don't know. He sort of disappears quite literally from the book. There's the question. We assume he's eradicated. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting and weird. And of course, one of the things you think of in terms of the book structure is the opening fight with Toadvine is in the mud next to the mm. outhouse. And the, the closing encounter with the judge is on, there's all this mud and boards mm. heading up to the outhouse. And it's amazing on the internet and among some of our colleagues, the amount of time people saying, this must be what happened to the kid. <laughs> he he has been eaten, devoured, raped, disincorporated. He gets away, which I think mm. is the certainly the world's most um, hopeful reading, given the last thing we see <laughs> right. is uh, it's hard to believe that the judge is simply going to give him a hug and say, I always did like you and let him go. Right. It doesn't really seem to play out here. No, the- but it is. I, I've always thought it was perfect, though, in a novel yeah. where you have had every different kind of violent act 
including, you know, the uh, Comanche attack on the Captain White ex- expedition, which happens 50 pages in and reads like the climax yeah. of any other novel. But this final act of violence is shielded, is veiled. You right. don't get to know. You don't get to see it. And so, I mean, it's easy to say, well, you know, I guess the judge is the point or I guess the judge wins or I guess the judge is who you're supposed to come away. You know, you're supposed to come away with those ideas. But I don't think so. I think resistance matters, even if you're eradicated in the process. <laughs> so to me, again, that's my interpretation. That's yeah. and it, it's it's hard to get there. It's a lot easier in his other novels. Yeah. Some of his other not certainly the road. Right. Um, right. That's an easier well, easier and, thing to get to. And maybe it's because the judge is seductive to him. Yeah. He does hear there is in him what the judge offers. Mm-hmm. And so I don't really read the scene the way some people do, but I do think it's interesting when the kid is, is a grown man. So I guess we could call him the grown kid or the, mm-hmm. the man, but then the we man, confused yeah. with the road character. But when he's, a, when he's grown and he encounters the Skinner's, who are camping and who start challenging him or who come Mm. upon his camp and they decide to come after him. Cause the one guy like the kid when he's young is just spoiling for a fight. Mm. Some people see it as a true moral failing that the kid decides to go off and hide and kill the guy when he comes back for him. I see that as kind of Western realism. You know, he's coming back. He reads it in the way that the judge reads the evil in the men's hearts around him. He reads evil in this young man's heart, perhaps recognizing it. But the truth is he doesn't simply move his camp. Yeah. And he doesn't, I don't know, shoot to wound or mm-hmm. anything like that. And I think most people would tell you, if you shoot to wound, he might turn around and kill you. You really just need to do yeah, it if you're yeah. going to do it. But still, uh, there are things he could have done that would have been more in that turn the cheek capacity that we see in someone like, say, Billy Parham. And yeah, in yeah. his discussion with the strange, almost judge-like traveler, but ju- you know, not in such an evil, towering way, but a mysterious traveler he encounters under the overpass in the very ending sequence of cities of the plane, which mm-hmm. is, I think the thing that really ties the rest of that book into what happens in the crossing and what is to come. Right. Right. And so maybe that's part of it too, that the kid never quite resists enough and that he's. Yeah. Yeah. What's right. the, the biblical line be betwixt in between, you know, you have to, you have to choose the side and maybe the kid doesn't quite do that enough. So, Stacy, what about the reception by critics when the book came out? We know it didn't sell widely. What did the critics have to say about it when it came out? And how did it eventually become so highly regarded as it is now? Well, it was you know, definitely praised. It just wasn't popular. Like all of McCarthy's novels up to this point, it sold less than... 5,000 copies. That's a, a statistic that's, you know, that's often, that's often cited. It's really not till Pretty Horses, right? Yeah. And then people kind of revisit his back catalog. Those get reissued. So, so many of them were out of print in 1992 when Pretty Horses comes out. And so, I mean, blood reading is still a surprise for people, just like it was for me, you know, right. in college. Uh, oh, I loved Pretty Horses. I'll read this next. Oh, wait, <laughs> this is not, this is not what I thought it was going to be. But still, Word of mouth, word of mouth, people talking, you know, again, it probably wasn't for the casual reader going over to the paperback section of the bookstore, but certainly, you know, people who are interested in McCarthy as a writer, as a serious writer, you know, read this and said, oh, okay, this is the one we should deal with. Yeah. Yeah. It, 
and, and famously, of course, uh, Harold Bloom in a few different of his books on mm. books and on great literature and things you should read. Talks about Blood Meridian is one of the great American novels of the last 30 or 40 years and one that everyone should read. He kind of mm. tends to trash some of the other books in favor of Blood Meridian, which I don't mm. completely agree with, especially the ones he chooses to put down. But he, his interest in it, I think, does spread it to an audience as well. Right. We right. see a few other critics who who get in, invested in in the novel and are willing to talk it up as well. Yeah, and we should add, you know, the the story I always tell about Harold Bloom famously saying, this is a masterpiece. It took me three times to read it. Yeah. It took me three tries because it was violent and difficult. And so even, you know, even somebody like him of his stature, you hit the middle, you got to work at it a yeah. bit. It's just doing so much. But if 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 you finish it, it pays off. I think my first time through, the violence felt gratuitous to me. Hmm. And I've certainly never been scared of violence in fiction. And as a teenager, that was really all I needed to enjoy something Hmm. was enough violence as I carved my way through all the Westerns and James Bond novels and Conan, the Sumerian, you know, fantasy novels by Robert Howard and people like that, uh, Robert E. Howard. And I love the violence, but there was something about this one that I felt it was almost rubbing your face in or show offy. And then I didn't, I think, realize until I, read Sutri and was blown away. And then I came back to it. So those are my first two books of McCarthy that it was, there's something just really special and important going on here. And I, I would never necessarily say it's my favorite, although it is every year. And I probably read it annually grown in my estimation hmm. more and more and more. And it's now knocking on the door. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I've always thought it is his most significant to distinguish right. in between those two. Now, you you said earlier that you define literary fiction as the plot summary doesn't do it justice. Right. And the way I often define it is there have to be sentences that just stop me cold. Yeah. With their beauty or unusual nature or the way they curl around themselves or what which is literally what they're saying and blood radiant yeah. just about every sentence does right. that just, just craftsmanship and it is something that's very hard to explain to people who don't read fiction for that quality right people people right. will say why do you like faulkner or why do you like tony morrison or why do you like some of these books by scott fitzgerald and really mm-hmm. what it all always comes down to is the craftsmanship right. more than anything and in, right. in mccarthy it is in every single novel he's published, it is about the craftsmanship as well as right. All if the you other look at his, doing. if you look at his manuscripts, he will sit with a sentence. He'll type it out one way, and then he'll type out the same sentence again and again, slightly differently, until he gets it just yeah. the way he wants. Um, yeah. And so he's that's why it's so interesting to look at you know to look at his materials is because he's somebody that you know he doesn't you're not going to see these elaborate outlines. You see notes, you know, here's where I used this regional detail. Here's where I used, you know, this anecdote. But what always strikes me is the time he takes with just a phrase, right? How, what, what, how do I get this perfect? Right. And then, you know, he knows when he does, it works. It's something that works. You know, we, um, we haven't talked about the epilogue. No. What, tell you us. can do a whole podcast just on that. I gave a talk on Plug Radiant just recently in Houston and I did something really brief with it. I was kind of short on time. And then a bunch of people came up to me afterwards and said, just tell us about the epilogue. Tell me what this means. Because <laughs> you, you, know, you quoted the passage with the judge dancing, right. which is the end of, I guess I usually say the novel proper. The end of the narrative. But it's, not, it's not the end end because uh, right. you've got this, this very That's cryptic. Right you know, italicized final passage, which sort of like that last paragraph on the road, 
you think you're done. And then there's just, oh, I just got through for thrown for a loop, right? <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe you want to wait and address it in a different, whole different podcast. I, I mean, I published an article basically taking the epilogue as its primary focus. And I talked about uh-huh. striking. Uh, so he's post hole digger, right? Yeah. Putting up fences. And Chip Arnold has a great essay that connects what we see here to what shows up a hundred years later in mm-hmm. all the pretty horses with the fence lines crisscrossing Texas. Right. Now the boys have to keep cutting apart a barbed wire fence to get their horses through, but being good kids, they don't leave it down. So the cows mm-hmm. and horses go wondering, they restrand, restrain the wire. Although how you do that without a come along. And I'm showing my redneck roots there. <laughs> I don't know. And if you, if you grow up country enough, you know what I mean with the come along. And if you don't, well, look it up. It's one of those few things in the American lexicon that actually makes sense when you see <laughs> right. it. So, but it's a little device for for moving things, a little winch and ratchet arrangement where you can use the stretch wire and all as well as pull your truck out of a bog or whatever you need to do. (laughs) I think it's fascinating and I think it's connecting that bloody single-mindedness of pure avarice and lack of morality to the modern pursuit of industrialization and development at all costs is how I read it. How about you? Oh, that's nice. Okay. Well, the way I answered that question when I was asked it is like, well, pick your approach, right? The most, the most, and obvious is not the word to use here clearly, but um, what most people say is, well, what this figure seems to be doing is digging post holes. The West is closing, right? This is the closing of the West. It's not, these wild and barbarous terrains are not going to be quite the same, right? In the future, as that passage, you know, in the beginning of the book tells us, you know, the kid just, or the man briefly, you know, in the previous scene has been in Fort Griffin. Uh, You know, this is also a town that's going to change. Yeah. The West will be different after this point. But beyond that, you know, the, the passage is so oblique and <laughs> the structure of the sentence, the sentences and the way they're written, there's this kind of subjective stance where, okay, this is happening, but actually it just appears like this is happening. They, they are making these movements and following this figure so that they appear restrained by a prudence or reflectiveness, which has no inner reality. And they cross in their progress one by one that track of holes that runs to the rim of the visible ground and which seems less the pursuit of some continuance than the verification of a principle, a validation of sequence and causality. As if (laughs) uh, each round and perfect hole owed its existence to the one before it. There on the prairie upon which are the bones and the gatherers of bones and those who do not gather, he strikes fire in the hole and draws out his steel. Then they all move on again. So people have written about this in so many different ways. Is this a continuation of this emphasis on representation and marking, right? Mm. Creating, yeah, yeah. or is it is it about uh, logos? Is it about like what order is? And maybe it has no inner reality. It's just the appearance of it. What about God? We see God, you know, God put the fire in the rock. Okay, haven't yeah. seen him around much in this yeah. story. So what does that mean? Who is this guy? Is this, I mean, some people reading this for the first time, is this the kid? And and searchers for bones, it almost sounds like archaeology or something like that. Right, right. Yeah, probably just bone gatherers, but the the way the syntax works, it's this seems like, and this is as if, but does that mean this isn't the case? Yeah. So it's kind of the, the, the sentence sort of the sentences sort of fold in on themselves in terms of what they're saying. Um, and so is this Prometheus, right? <laughs> Um, can we do something with that? Because this is, you know, the fire in the rock that God has put there. Um, is this a Promethean endeavor in some kind of way? There's all kinds of takes that you can have on it. 
But I think some of the most interesting are probably those highly philosophical takes on yeah. what is order. Yeah. How do we make meaning in the world? And is, is it all illusory? But maybe that doesn't matter. So back to Kant and phenomenology and all that. And yeah, you want to you want to get wonky. You can get pretty wonky. with Yeah, that. yeah, you can. <laughs> the original question I had at the end, since we've asked mm. you a couple of times about favorites, was do you think this is also his most significant book? The answer is obviously so I always tell my students, mm. never write anything in your papers where the response to the sentence or the paragraph is, well, duh, try to avoid being <laughs> right. quite that obvious. So I'll avoid this question. And maybe we could do a quick, right off the top of our head, either one is prepped mm. for this, just kind of recommended reading. So clearly, Sepik's Notes on Blood Meridian right. is a starting place. The uh, Bloody and Barbarous God by Patrick Mundick is a great mm -hmm. book. I, I would recommend Russ, uh, Russell Hillier's book on morality, uh, Cormac uh, McCarthy. One of the most famous articles is still uh, Dana Phillips writing about optical democracy, which is a phrase that's used in the novel. Right. And this kind of idea of, is this a novel that regards everything in its scope kind of on equal level? Right. It's an image late in the book where you're seeing uh, the judge and the fool. And but they just look at from a certain perspective, they just look at one with the landscape. Right. Absolutely. And so he kind of takes that as is this a book that is de is unanthropocentric. Right. Right. It, it's a book that's uh, almost like the, the phrase we use now, like deep time. Yeah. What happens if it's not humanistic? What happens if it's a different kind of perspective, narrative perspective entirely? Mm. And I think that one's really interesting. I'm not sure I agree with it because I still read McCarthy very humanistically. Personally. Yeah, me too. But I think that one's a really interesting one. To, you know, I give it to students a lot of times because it takes these passages and takes their language and the the again the the sort of show stopping thing they're doing with description and says, okay, what are the philosophical implications of describing something this way? So I really like that one. Uh, I think that one is you know, pretty available. It's a nice read. It's, it's an article as opposed to a full book, of course, but, um, but I really like that one. Really the collections of those stories on, uh, or excuse me, those articles in uh, Myth, Legends, and Dust is a great place to start as well. And I've been trying to remember the title of Nell Sullivan's that she did early on on Blood Meridian, and it isn't quite coming to me, but it's really excellent mm. as well. So there's some good starting places for those you guys looking. Of course, Steve's uh, in the Cambridge Companion, Steve's, um, yeah. or Steve's Cambridge book um, on Cormac McCarthy, Steve Fry, yeah. again, that book as well. What I might do That's, is... Yeah, that one is always my go-to uh, yeah. when I want to... Kind of start there and move from there. Yeah. Right. With, with right. the readings as well. And all these things are useful. And I will say that at various times in the journal, Diane Luce has gathered bibliographies of things that have been published in various places on McCarthy. And so those are often available through JSTOR and, and back issues for those of you And I should mention, there's things. an awful lot of, there's an awful lot of good writing on McCarthy generally, but Blood Meridian in particular, that's more popular writing on the web. Yeah, you can read some really, you know, thoughtful stuff. Uh, it's not scholarly, you know, it's not published in a scholarly uh, venue. But again, I think it's a testament to the to the life of the novel, you yeah. know, the kind of ongoing richness of it, because it just doesn't seem like we'll ever get to the end of ways to talk about it. You know, some books survive into the canon because of academia, mm -hmm. and at some level, their popularity fades and people aren't reading them, but they're still being taught a lot. And so they're sustained on into 
the future because of professors and students and literary articles. And if you want to get promoted, you better publish something. Well, I want to write on this guy. But then there are other books which are really not taught that often, like Miss Lonely Hearts by Hmm. Nathaniel West. Right. Or I don't know, we could all books by writers like Celine, which are fascinating, Hmm. weird and problematical because of the historical context and where the author's coming from and so on. But uh, Henry Miller is never taught in colleges, I bet. Right, but people right. are reading him still because yeah. there's some value to, along with all the other stuff he does. And probably even um, the beat writers are largely untaught and mm. maybe not that easily teachable, but you know, readers still discover them and right. keep getting invested. And I think Blood Meridian is one of those books. It's probably not taught that often for all the political correctness issues we talked about earlier and sensitivity issues and the well shoot the length i mean it's yeah, long yeah. right <laughs> exactly it is long uh now i have taught the crossing which is even longer, i think even yeah. longer and i think denser language in sections of it than even blood meridian is that you know lacks the, the constant things happening that blood meridian has going for it and but i haven't i've only taught it once i've never gone back to it so <laughs> that speaks for itself I, I typically tend to a couple of the early books and then skip the two masterpieces or maybe, maybe there's more than two. I'm prepared to go up to five masterpieces, but still. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, but I can't tell you how many times I've been in, you know, casual conversation with people in academia or not, you know, something totally different. And somebody's, Oh, McCarthy, you know, you do McCarthy. God, I love McCarthy. This happened on Monday. I was in a meeting, you know, and somebody said, Oh yeah, that's right. You're the person who does McCarthy leaned across the table. Right. Like I love McCarthy. (laughs) So This is one of those books that I think, you know, and McCarthy is an author generally, but I think when you love McCarthy, this is one you're going to talk about. Right. In my, in my secret identity, I am not only a college (laughs) professor, but a college administrator. And I'm, I work a lot with SAC COC, which all Southeastern Mm -hmm. colleges that are accredited of, of, have valuable accreditation, use them. And that means Southern Association, College of Schools, Commission on Colleges. I just had the very interesting and odd experience of people. I I recently went on a visit to a very impressive, smaller Texas university. Hmm. And I I had the very odd and somewhat rewarding and and somewhat humbling experience of people there knowing about me through the podcasts and stuff I'd published on McCarthy. And so I wasn't just some interloper from beyond, but they're actually... English faculty and even the provost of this place were all knew about the work of McCarthy and the provost absolutely loved the crossing. He grew up in mm. New Mexico and for him, that's McCarthy's oh. the big book. And so it was very rewarding and interesting. I wasn't expecting it. So it, it just show you how much appreciation for him has grown. Yeah. It'll get you in some doors, you know, yeah. for sure. Think in the interest of our schedules, we should probably wrap it up, but Stacy, I so much appreciate you coming on the podcast again. Yeah. Thanks Scott. It's always fun. Probably follow this up with at least one or two more discussions. One of might be one of those big, big panel discussions. And we'll see this book mm. again, as you said, rewards digging into it and digging into it and digging into it and striking fire from it over and over again. <laughs> well, it's not a race to words like the judge might do. <laughs> Stacey Peebles is chair of the English program, director of film studies and the Marlene and David Grissom professor of humanities at Center College in Danville, Kentucky. She's out to welcome to the suck. Narrating the American Soldier's Experience in Iraq and Cormac McCarthy in Performance Page Stage Screen, 2017 publication. She is co-editor of the recently published volume, Approaches to Teaching the Works of Cormac McCarthy. She has been editor of Cormac McCarthy Journal since 2010. Thanks as well, as always, to Thomas Fry, who composed, performed, produced the music for reading McCarthy. 
The views of the host and his guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their home institutions or the Cormac McCarthy Society, although in our hearts, we hope they'll someday see the light. <laughs> Download and follow us on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're agreeable, it'll help us if you provide favorable reviews on these platforms. If you enjoy this podcast, you may also enjoy the Great American Novel podcast hosted by myself and Kurt Kernett. To contact me, please reach out to readingmccarthy at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. The website is at readingmccarthy.buzzsprout.com. And if you'd like to support the show, you can click a little heart symbol at the top of the webpage to buy the show a cappuccino, or you can support us at www.patreon.com forward slash readingmccarthy. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you, Stacey. <laughs>